0: And as we said last week, I want to encourage you every week, come with an attitude of expectation. Come believing that there's something God wants to say to you through his word this evening. You know, when you have a pen in your hand, when you're ready to take notes, when you have your Bible ready to be open, you are positioning yourself in such a way that God can speak to you because you're ready to receive from him. So I want to encourage you, be ready to receive from the Lord this evening. We're studying our way through the fascinating instructional helpful and illuminating book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And our recent studies have shifted from the life of Abraham to the life of his son, Isaac. And today we're going to start by solving a mystery. Solving a mystery. We're going to look at One more piece of prophetic insight that's in the text we've been looking at, hiding just below the surface, and then we're going to take a look at the subject of reconciliation. How to bring two parties together when there's strife involved. And I know that that's never happened to you, but other people often find themselves sometimes struggling to live in peace with their spouse or their family or their coworkers, etc. And perhaps you might know someone uh, who has or is struggling with that. And I think that person you know might find today's message incredibly helpful. So be prepared for that as well. And, and let's be honest, sooner or later, if we're in a good place right now, we're going to find ourselves struggling in a relationship with somebody because we're human beings, we're people. That's an inevitability. But I wanna start with an interesting and, and somewhat odd question that was asked of me by, by Ken actually. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he came up to me after the service and he said, uh, he said hey Jeff, I got a question for you. I've, I've studied Genesis before, the part that we were studying today, and, and one thing has always puzzled me. Why wasn't Abraham with Sarah when she died? Uh, you know, as we talk about all the time, Jeff, we believe every detail in the Bible is important. So, so why does the Bible give us that specific detail? You know, to which I responded with, well, I don't know if I said every detail, Ken, like, but, but but, it's true. Every detail is important. Every detail is important. For you see, after the whole Mount Moriah sacrifice of Isaac incident that we studied before, we were told in Genesis 22, 19, I'll put it on the screen it says, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. And then in the next chapter, at the very beginning, we read in Genesis 23:2, So Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Hence Ken's question. So after the whole Mount Moriah thing, Abraham doesn't go all the way back home, he just settles at Beersheba and he's, he's not living with Sarah for that brief period of time before she dies. What, what's the deal, what's going on? And I'm not exaggerating when I say I went home and I exhausted every commentary, every sermon I could find. I even had a conversation with the esteemed biblical professor, Google MacGoogleface, and he had He had nothing to offer at all, nothing at all. And so I had to go to Ken last Sunday and ask him to please quietly leave the church. But he kept showing up, he kept showing up. I'm I'm kidding, I told him, I said, Ken, you know what, I, I got no idea. Like I got absolutely nothing. I have no idea. And I remember that Chuck Messler always said that if you find something in the Bible you don't understand or a question about the scriptures that you can't find the answer to, you should write it down in a journal and thank the Lord for it because you've just discovered a treasure that the Lord wants to reveal to you in the coming days, months, or years to come. And he will inevitably lead you to the answer in the future. And I always thought that was really, really good advice because it's so important to be honest about the things in Scripture that you do not understand. It's so important to not settle for a weak explanation or a weak interpretation. It's so important to be okay not knowing the answer immediately and putting some work into it, to wrestle with it until you find the truth. And if you can't, Write it down and ask the Lord to reveal the truth to you, to lead you to it, and he will. And in this instance, I was incredibly blessed by the Lord to only have to wait a week. And so I just wanted to share the answer with you because I found it incredibly interesting as it came together. And so let's start by just refreshing our memories, if if you've missed the last few weeks, on a subject that's come up a lot recently in these last few chapters of Genesis, which is the idea of types, types, we have prototypes, we have archetypes, we have stereotypes, and so a type is essentially a model. And in the Genesis text, we've been seeing a lot of people who are prophetic types, in other words, part of their life is recorded in scripture, and that part of their life actually points ahead prophetically, it serves as a pattern of someone else who is to come in the future. This is something we see all over the scripture. The most common kind is there are people in the Old Testament who serve as types of Jesus, parts of the life of King David point to Jesus, parts of the life of Joshua point to Jesus, parts of the life of Moses point to Jesus, and we just had a whole host of types in these last few chapters coming together to weave an incredibly intricate prophetic picture, which just gets more astounding the more layers you add to it. And what we found in these last few chapters is that Abraham served as a type of God the Father, Isaac, Abraham's son, served as a type of Jesus, the son. Eliezer, Abraham's head servant, served as a type of the Holy Spirit. But I want to ask you as well if there might be someone else in the family who's featured heavily in our studies recently that might also serve as a type. I had a suspicion and I just couldn't put it Altogether until this week. Make a note of this and we'll unpack it. I want to suggest to you that Abraham's wife is a type of Israel. Abraham's wife is a type of Israel. And when we say Abraham's wife, it will refer to both Sarah and to Keturah. If you've been with us in our study, you will recall that the Lord never referred to Hagar as Abraham's wife. So Abraham's wife is a type of Israel. So think back with me on the flow of our story so far. Sarah desires to have a son, to create life, but she can't because she is barren. And so the picture right there is man fallen into sin, desiring to have life, but can't because we've fallen into sin. There's nothing we can do about it. However, instead of trusting in the Lord's promises, Sarah decides to try and make it happen herself. I will bring about life myself in my own efforts, but she's gonna try and do it through a work of the flesh, not a work of God, not a work of the Spirit, not believing the promises of God. You might recall that she has Abraham sleep with her maidservant Hagar and says, this is a way that I can create something, I can create life, and then everything will work out fine. But you'll remember it was a work of the flesh. God didn't even recognize that child, Ishmael, as being Abraham's real son. He said, he's not my plan. My plan is a work of the spirit, not a work of your flesh. And the Lord had Hagar and Ishmael sent out away from Abraham and Sarah. And all of that pointed to Israel's attempts to have a relationship with God, to produce life through following the law a work of the flesh, and if you know your Old Testament, you know that it failed spectacularly because no human other than Jesus Christ has ever been able to keep the law of God perfectly. But then God did do a work through Sarah, just as he did a work through the Jews, and he produced the son that God had planned to send all along, Isaac, the picture of Jesus who came through the Jews and was sent to give life and produce life. But then Sarah, the picture of Israel, dies. She disappears from view in our story and is buried. You might recall the strange words of Abraham who requests that she be buried out of his sight, as the scriptures say. And only after Sarah is out of the picture is Eliezer sent by Abraham to find a bride for Isaac. Just as only after Israel rejects Jesus as Messiah is the gospel given to the Gentiles and the Holy Spirit is sent out to find a bride for Jesus. The bride that the Holy Spirit finds for Jesus is what? The church. The church. And who in Genesis is a type of the church? It's Rebekah, the wife that Eliezer finds for Isaac. Then we saw Rebecca taken to Isaac. Isaac did not go to her, she was brought to him, just as the church will be taken to Jesus in the rapture, and they are joined together. The church is the bride of Christ. She's a pure bride, a virgin bride, a faithful bride, because Jesus makes her so, washing away all her sins with his own blood, making her spotless and righteous. That's how chapter 24 of Genesis ends, with Isaac and Rebekah being joined together. But I want you to notice something Abraham, a type of the father, was married to Sarah. We know that the church is the bride of Christ, but did you know that God the Father also has a bride? He also has a wife. Except unlike the virgin pure church that is the bride of Christ, the wife of the father is an unfaithful bride accused over and over in the Old Testament by the Lord of playing the harlot, to be blunt. The bride of God the father is Israel the Jewish people and when you dig into the Old Testament this becomes glaringly obvious I mean it's not even subtle it's all over the scriptures I'm not going to get into all of them but I'll I'll mention some of the scriptures briefly I've listed them on your outline so that you can dig into this further in your own studies and I hope you will but just a few examples, all the language that is used by the Lord about his relationship to Israel is marital. So the Lord says that those in Israel, in Leviticus 20, who turn a blind eye to their brother worshiping false gods and consulting mediums, they prostitute themselves. Jeremiah 2 and 3 are filled with Israel being described and detailed as an unfaithful wife. In Ezekiel 16, the Lord speaks of his love for Israel and then goes on to talk about how she's played the harlot and been unfaithful to him. The book of Hosea is all about God likening Israel's unfaithfulness to him as a wife being unfaithful to her husband and playing the harlot behind his back. God the Father has a wife too, and she is Israel. And chapter 24 of Genesis ends with Abraham the father still single, even though the son has been brought together with his bride. Sarah had died and been buried out of Abraham's sight. And it was after that, after that, that the Holy Spirit was sent out. Eliezer was sent out. A bride was found for Isaac. The church was found for Jesus. And Isaac and Rebekah were brought together just as the church and Jesus will be brought together in the rapture. Then, after those events take place, notice the order here, then chapter 25 opens with Abraham the father taking a new Wife, and we read, Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. As we mentioned last week, the name Keturah means incense. In other words, she was a blessing, she was pleasing to Abraham, the father. And if you've been with us when we did our Revelation study, then you know that incense was a product at this time that was produced by a process of crushing. And that's important because after the church has been taken in the rapture to be united with Jesus, God the Father will once again turn his attention to his wife, Israel. Only this time, Israel will be a blessing, will be incense to him. And how is that going to happen? Well, Israel is going to be crushed Through the time period known as the Great Tribulation, God will soften the hearts of the Jews and ultimately reveal himself to them and save them. And we're not going to get in-depth into all the details of that, but if you haven't listened to our Revelation study yet, you need to get a life and get on that. It's all covered in detail in that message series, and you can listen to that on the website. Well, after talking about Israel's unfaithfulness in Ezekiel 16... The chapter ends with the Lord saying this to them. He says, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Of course, in the original language, the word everlasting means everlasting. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord. And even in the New Testament, Romans 11, the most important chapter in the New Testament about God's future plans for the Jewish people, it opens with the most clear of statements written by the Apostle Paul. I say then, has God cast away his people? Speaking of the Jews, Apostle Paul says, certainly not. And later in that same chapter, Paul makes this inarguable point concerning all the promises that God has made to Israel. He says, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, irrevocable. The Lord is a faithful husband, even when his wife has been unfaithful. What does 2 Timothy 2.13 say? It says if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so going all the way back to the beginning here, why wasn't Abraham with Sarah when she died? because Abraham is a type of the father, and Sarah was a type of Israel. After Mount Moriah, after the cross of Calvary, the Lord's focus shifted to the Gentiles, and Israel was put away for rejecting Jesus as Messiah. Paul says they're under a partial blindness, a partial hardening. If Abraham had returned to Sarah after Mount Moriah, before Isaac had been joined with his bride Rebekah the order of events would not line up with everything that the whole story points to prophetically. And so even though it seems strange here in Genesis, and even though we don't know what Abraham's personal reason was in that moment, we know that in order for the prophetic types to fit absolutely, precisely into everything else the Bible says, it had to line up this way. And for that reason, we're specifically told that Abraham and Sarah did not come together after the incident on Mount Moriah. It's strange because God wants us to notice that in the text and say something else is going on here. And this is what it is. It's pointing ahead to the whole plan that God has for the Jewish people. You know, the more you study God's word, the more layers you'll discover in it, and it'll never cease to amaze you. The precision of God's word, especially when it comes to the subject of prophecy. And let me encourage you with this, because maybe you're not like me. Maybe you think, well, that's great, but I got real problems, Jeff, and I need some sort of solution for that. Let me encourage you with this. The same level of precision that we see here operating across thousands of years down to the finest detail, that same level of precision is at work in your life by the same God who worked so precisely in the lives of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Eliezer, and Rebecca. When Romans 8.28 tells us that we know all things work together for good to those that love God, it's not wishful thinking. It's not just a nice idea. We're talking about the reality that God is at work in our lives, doing good, making us more like Jesus in precise, planned, exacting ways. The Lord knows exactly what he's doing in our lives. He had it planned out before the world was even made. And you know this if you've ever sat with a group of believers and listened to them talk just about how God has worked in their lives across the years of their lives, So when I study prophecy in the Bible, it's not just to nerd out and impress friends at parties. It's to remind me to live for the future, for those glorious things that God has stored up for me and for you. And it's to remind me that the Lord works precisely to keep his promises in my life. That when one little thing seems to go off track, when life seems to go off the rails a little bit i look at what god did across time and across countless lives and i see it in his word and i go i go no lord your your plans are not derailed like that You work precisely and you accomplish exactly what you want, exactly the way you want. Thank you, God, you're doing that in my life too. So take encouragement from the fact that the same thing is true. The same God who we see at work precisely in Genesis is at work in your life precisely today. Grab a hold of that. Believe that. Take comfort in that. Shifting gears, let's take a look at verse 9 of chapter 25 together as we pick up our story. We'll get through two whole verses and then talk for a while about it, okay? Verse 9, it says, and his sons, and then underline Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him, that's Abraham, in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. You'll recall this was the field he purchased to bury Sarah in several years earlier. So to refresh our memory, Isaac and Ishmael, half brothers, their relationship didn't really end on such good terms. Sarah saw the older Ishmael beating up, mocking, bullying the much younger Isaac and said to Abraham, Ishmael's got to go. You got to get him out of here. And Abraham was troubled, but you'll recall the Lord himself told Abraham, do what Sarah has asked. Send away Ishmael, send away his mother Hagar, I'll take care of them and he will grow into a great nation. So Abraham did just that. In faith, trusting God would take care of his son Ishmael, he sent them out with just a loaf of bread and a skin of water into the wilderness. But now we see them brought together after that strange parting after that contentious division that saw them part ways, we now see them brought together, reconciled through the death of their father, Abraham. And through this moment, we see the ever-important truth that if there is ever to be reconciliation between you and the son or daughter who is estranged from you, between you and the mother or father who doesn't understand you, between you and the friend who betrayed you, between you and the spouse who hurt you, if there's ever to be reconciliation, someone has got to die. Someone has got to die. Write this down. True reconciliation requires someone dying. True reconciliation requires someone dying. It's a principle that we should all understand because our sin estranged us from our heavenly Father. And in Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes this, pen and hand, underline every time the word reconciled or reconciliation shows up, we read, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. If you're a believer, then you were reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. And then once we were reconciled, he gave us, charged us with, The ministry of reconciliation, to reconcile people to God as we share with them the good news of the gospel, but also to reconcile people to each other. And you might hear that and say, Jeff, I think you're stretching it. The the only reconciliation there is is between man and God. Don't, Don't stretch it to make it like it's between people just so you can make a good sermon point. But don't forget the shocking words of Jesus that show us just how much he cares about reconciliation between each other. In Matthew 5, 24, Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar, if you're coming to church to worship with a gift, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What? Jesus said, don't even think about playing the spiritual card. Don't even think about trying to say, you know, I need to focus on the Lord right now and not my relationship with them. I just really need to focus on Jesus and I can't, I can't go apologize to them right now. I need to be with the Lord. Jesus said, stop your worship. Stop your prayer. Stop your offering. Put down your Bible. Go to your brother and sister and make things Right be reconciled, then come back to worship. As we've said before, Jesus does not believe in compartmentalization. Have you noticed this? God does not operate in a way where we can say, hey, Lord, I know you want me to do that, but I'm gonna put that on the shelf for right now because it's time for church. God says, "What what are you talking about? Go make it right. We don't put stuff on the side when it needs to be dealt with. He doesn't want any of us worshiping when we know that there's a brother or sister that we've hurt, that we need to go and be reconciled with. And the Greek word that is used by Paul there for reconcile is the word dialiso. It's a word used by tailors and garment makers with regard to altering a garment. In other words, Jesus was saying, hey, if you're in church, if you're at the altar and you realize that a relationship doesn't fit right something's off, then you need to go and do some work on that. You need to go alter that relationship before you come worship at the altar. So how will reconciliation happen practically? There's only one way. Someone has to die. If there's to be reconciliation with your wife, your husband, your daughter-in-law, your boss, your coach, your neighbor, you have to die to your own selfish desires. Your flesh, your need to be right, your need to win. And please understand that, that, that as always, we're not talking about abusive situations where someone's safety is in danger. We're talking about those, those clashes of wills. But I don't want to die, we'll say. How come she can't die? It's his turn to die. I'm sick and tired of dying. Why do I have to die again? You know, the most tragic marriage breakdowns that I've ever encountered are the ones where there's, where there's no real issue there hasn't been any adultery, there hasn't been any major sin or breach of trust, just just irritations that have grown over the years. And when you listen to those, those couples list their grievances, all you can ultimately share is, guys, one of you's gotta die. Or well, there's no hope for reconciliation. You know, and then one of the spouses says, well, I've actually got a plan to make that happen. I'm gonna take care of them. But I say, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking. That's not what I'm talking about. You, I'm speaking to you, not you helping them die. You die, okay. All you can say is that the word says you're both to lay down your lives for the other. And there's no way forward uh, unless at least one of you is willing to do that. And sadly, the usual response is just, why me? It's his turn. It's her turn. And I know that some of us in this very room or watching online or listening online are in this exact situation in our marriages. There's a, a husband who hasn't figured out how to put it into words because he's a man, but, but he wonders to himself, you know, why, why is she so cold? What have I done wrong? Why doesn't she see my needs? I've been good to her. I've been faithful. I've provided for her. I've tried to be helpful, but it's been months and it's been years and I've just had enough. There's a good chance that same man's wife thinks to herself, why why is he so demanding? Why is it that I'm never good enough? Why doesn't he understand that I'm, I'm not just a thing to be used, why can't he just love me the way the Bible says he ought to? And in their silence, bitterness rises like a wall between them growing higher and higher every day and they come out to church and lift their hands and open their Bibles. When the Lord would say, If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your husband or your wife has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your husband. First be reconciled to your wife and then come and offer your gift. Why should you be the one to die? Why should you go first? Why should you not wait for them? I'll give you three reasons. Make a note of this. Firstly, Reconciliation blesses our Heavenly Father. Reconciliation blesses our Heavenly Father. You know, every parent, I hope, knows the delight of reconciliation. That rare moment like the passing of Halley's Comet, when I hear one of my kids say to the others, it's your turn, you go first, you have the last piece. And all I can say is, of a certainty, the Lord is in this place. The age of miracles is not over. My, my kids are actually growing in Christ-likeness. They're dying to self. i got to go write this date down in my journal. Today, I was not a failure as a parent. I'm going to go make a note of this. And if you're fortunate enough to have a child who, who even occasionally goes out of his or her way to be a peacemaker, then you know it just, it just blesses your heart when he or she does that. And likewise, we bring great joy and bless the heart of our heavenly father when he hears from heaven us say, you know what, I'm gonna die so there can be reconciliation. I'm gonna lay my life down. That blesses our heavenly father so much. And on its own, if for no other reason, if it's never reciprocated, that's a reason to lay down your life. That's the reason to die to yourself, to bless your heavenly father. Secondly, write this down. Reconciliation defeats the schemes of Satan. It defeats the schemes of Satan. Division is one of Satan's favorite and, and most effective tactics, divide and conquer. As one of only two archangels in heaven, Lucifer persuaded a third of the angels to see things his way. And they're now eternally damned. And because Satan continues to use the same tactics today, we we deal a death blow to his work in our lives when we say, you know what? I will die before I allow bitterness between me and a brother or sister. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll lay my life down. The person who binds Satan is not the person who loudly says, I bind you, Satan. The person who, who binds Satan is the one who dies to self and brings reconciliation to a relationship with a brother or sister. The binding of Satan doesn't come about through something we say verbally, but through a choice that we make actively. I will not allow this to happen in my life. I will lay down my life before I'll let that happen. And then lastly, reconciliation destroys our flesh. It destroys our flesh. That's why we should do it. The reason we suffer through bouts of angst and Discontent is because we often slip into the belief that if we could just indulge or pamper our flesh, if we could just get our way, then we'd be happier. But Jesus taught that the exact opposite is actually true. He said that it's the one who loses his life that finds it. He taught that the one who follows him must deny himself and take up his cross. And I can never pass up the chance to point out the cross that Jesus is talking about bearing and taking up is not getting the flu or getting fired from your job. It's not even divorce or death in your family, as tragic as those events are. The cross that he's talking about is not something that comes uninvited, it's not something that falls on you from the heavens. Let me say that again. The cross that Jesus tells us to take up is not something that comes into our lives uninvited. It's something that we choose to do. It's a laying down of our life that we choose to do that causes pain and agony to our flesh, to our carnal nature, to that part of us that wants to be the most important thing in the universe. That's the cross that Jesus endured when he prayed not my will but yours be done. I'm tired of being married to him. I'm tired of being married to her. I'm tired of my mom or dad treating me this way or. I'm tired of my in-laws or extended family and taking up our cross means saying what Jesus did, which is, you know, nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. And your will is that there would be reconciliation. So so I gotta die, I gotta die. That's the cross Jesus is talking about. That's the cross that Jesus took up in the garden before he was even arrested. The Roman soldier knew that Jesus had died when he stuck a spear in his side and there was no reaction other than, than what? The blood and water that flowed out. So when that person that you've been having a hard time with, wounds you yet again. And you don't respond. And you don't react. And you don't retaliate. And the only thing that comes out of you is blood and water. What Jesus has done for you. The grace that he has bathed you in. When that's the only reaction you have, you'll know that you've died to your flesh crucifixion was designed to be the most torturous death possible many victims hung on a cross for two or three days struggling before they finally died Jesus hung on the cross for six hours before he died the truth is that he was in a hurry to die because he knew that the sooner he died and completed the work of redemption the sooner Easter Sunday would come and what if he had decided to struggle hour after hour day after day Easter couldn't have happened till after he died. That's why Jesus said if you'll deny yourself, you'll have life. But if you seek to hang on to your life, if you fight against dying to yourself, you'll only prolong your misery. Church family, it's not that we have to die, it's that we get to die, we get to die. Will you be the one today who loves God so much that you'll bless him? by dying to your rights, your way, your will? If so, reconciliation, one way or another, is sure to follow and you might be shocked as the disciples and woman at the tomb were to see life emerge from a place, from a relationship that you thought was completely dead. Take a look with me at verse 11. It says, and it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer le That's a well that it's mentioning there. So Abraham dies, this giant of the faith, and as we see over and over again in Scripture, God buries his workmen, but his work goes on. You know, the longer I live, the longer I do ministry, the, the more grateful I am to have any role in God's work on the earth. It's such a privilege for you and I to be, to be part of his story. It's such an honor to be used by the Lord in any way. The Lord doesn't need any of us to accomplish his work and yet he delights and takes joy in having us join him in his work. We're, we're about as useful as the little boy or girl who sits on their father's lap as he drives his ride-on lawnmower around. And yet, just like that father, we bring our heavenly Father, great joy because we're his children and he loves us and he loves when we just want to be with him and be involved in what he's doing. You've never seen a dad come in and say to his wife, honestly, you know, today was great. You know, our little three-year-old Billy was on my lap and having him help me mow the lawn, help me get it done twice as fast as normal. You've never seen that happen. But that dad comes in beaming because he got to hang out with his kid that he loves That's the relationship we have with the Lord. That's how the Lord uses us, that's how he feels about using us in his work and having us participate with him in his work on the earth. If we want to see how essential we are to God's work on the earth, I want to encourage you, get a cup of water and stick a finger in it and then pull it out and take note of how long it takes for the hole in the water to fill up. That's about how essential we are to the work of God on the earth. That's about how much he needs us to complete it. And even a giant like Abraham, that's about how much God needed Abraham. God buries his workmen, but his work goes on. It's such an honor to be used by the Lord. Such an honor for each of us. And now the story shifts to Isaac. But before we can do that, we have to finish off the story of Isaac's half-brother Ishmael. Abraham's other son from his relationship with Hagar. And we're going to finish up that story in just a few verses. Why? To get him out of the picture. Because Ishmael is a type of what? He's a type of the flesh. And that's why the idea is let's deal with him, finish him up, and get him out of the way so that we can shift the focus back to Isaac, who is a type of the spirit. In verse 12, we read, now, this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadar, Tima, Jatur, Naphish, and Kedemah. These were the sons of Ishmael and these were their names by their towns and their settlements. Twelve princes according to their nations. Just a point of interest, some of you will recall that God promised Abraham this exact thing back in Genesis seventeen twenty, Specifically that Ishmael would become a great nation and beget Quote, 12 princes. And here we see God very specifically, as always, keeping his promises. That's exactly how it played out. Verse 17, these were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. You'll notice it doesn't say that Ishmael died full, like we read about Abraham last week. It doesn't say that Ishmael's life was full of days, as we read about Abraham last week, only years. And so the idea is that Ishmael, a picture of the flesh, lived a life that was, it was ultimately unsatisfying. And when you live for your flesh, when you live only to satisfy your flesh and your wants and desires, that's what you'll find. Life will, at the end of everything, have been very unsatisfying. Verse 18. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. You might want to underline that word died in verse 18 because it's a different word. Some of your Bibles might have a note on there that says the word actually used there in the original language is fell. It's a a different word than is used to describe Abraham's death. The idea is he didn't die peacefully like Abraham He fell, he was cast down, he was overthrown. His death did not come peacefully upon him like Abraham's did. He died unsatisfied, his life was interrupted and death pounced upon him is the idea. Verse 19, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as a wife. If you're still under the age of 40 and single, stop complaining, okay? Isaac was 40 right there the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now, and then underline this phrase, especially you men. I guarantee you your wife is gonna underline it. Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. Underline that. Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was barren. She couldn't have children, just as Isaac's own mother, Sarah, had struggled with barrenness. What does Isaac, the picture of the Spirit, do? He prays for his wife. He intercedes for her. Husbands, if you haven't learned this yet, every woman goes through times of barrenness. And I'm not speaking physically. I'm speaking specifically spiritually and emotionally. They go through seasons where it's just a struggle to Produce life and find joy. And, and those are usually the moments when we have no idea what to say other than, I hope you feel better soon, you know, as we mumble under our breath for my sake. And uh, Isaac shows us the better way, the more mature way, the thing that we can do that's that's actually effective and helpful. We can pray for our wives. We can pray for our wives. And let me point out that when I say pray, I mean pray. Do you know how long Isaac prayed for his wife, Rebecca, regarding this issue? When you look at verse 20 and verse 26 and do the math, you realize Isaac prayed for 20 years for Rebecca before she became pregnant. Faithfully praying for his wife. Don't give up in prayer. Don't give up. Persist in prayer. Persist in prayer. So make a note of this. The Spirit calls spouses to pray for each other rather than trying to fix each other. Pray for each other rather than trying to fix each other. I've yet to meet the spouse who says, you know, the most profound changes in my character, those turning points in my life when I became dramatically more like Jesus, came about when my spouse finally criticized me into submission And I yielded to the will of the Lord and he moved in my life. I've never heard that one. I've never heard the one that says, you know, the the nagging became so annoying that I fell on my face before Jesus and said, change me, change me. And he did. I've never heard that testimony. I've never heard it. Testimony I have heard a whole lot. is from spouses who said, "I, I didn't know what else to do other than pray. And I just prayed and God just did something one day. And they just walked in the house one day and they were a different person and they had had an encounter with the Lord. I don't know how to explain it, but God just did something. I've heard that. You've probably heard that too. And so let me encourage you with your spouse. Don't try to fix them. Pray for them. You're not the healer. The Lord is the healer, so ask him to heal them. The Bible tells us that's what Jesus is doing for us when we're not producing life, when we're spiritually barren. Jesus is praying for us. What does Hebrews 7.25 tell us about Jesus? It says he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he lives to make intercession for them. That's what Jesus, the husband of the church, does for his wife, that's what he does for you and us. He prays for us. And wives, if you haven't figured it out yet, men also go through seasons of barrenness and your husband needs your prayers too. I'm just emphasizing this word to husbands because women are generally like about a billion times more likely to be praying for their husbands than husbands are to be praying for their wives if we're just gonna have real talk in church today. So, woman, keep praying for your husbands. Men, husbands, pray for your wives. Pray for your wives. If you're not doing it regularly, start. Put a post it note on the bathroom mirror, somewhere where you're going to see it every day, and just pray for them that they would have the Lord's joy, that they would have His strength, that they would have His peace. Makes all the difference in the world. Isaac prayed for his wife and she became pregnant. Verse 22, but the children, plural, struggled together within her. We'll find out she was pregnant with twins. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? What's going on inside me? So she went to inquire of her best friend. Sorry, so she went to inquire of a Christian counselor. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not what it says. So she went to inquire of Facebook. Anybody else been in this situation? No, no. So she went to inquire of her favorite book on building a Christian family. It's not what it says. Underline what it says. So she went to inquire of whom? Of the Lord. She went to inquire of the Lord because as Isaiah prophesied, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Counselor. It never ceases to amaze me. The things that we will do, the options we will try, the the people we will talk to, the prayer that we will ask for from other people before we ourselves have even prayed and gone to the Lord to ask for an answer. I won't ask if you've ever done that. Ask for prayer for something you haven't even prayed about. When we need understanding, What Christians do is seek the Lord, is pray, is fast, is search the scriptures. That's what we do when we need understanding. And if you're in the place of needing understanding right now over something specific in your life, that's what you need to do. Pray, seek the Lord, fast, search the scriptures. It's that simple. Make a note of this. This is good preaching right here. When God only knows, only God knows. When you're in that situation, I was pretty pleased with that one. When you're in that situation where you're like, what is going on? What is going on? God only knows. Guess what? Only God knows. Nobody else knows. Nobody else has the insight. Nobody else is inside your spouse's head. Only God knows. So why go to anyone else than him first for the answers? There's such insight in this chapter for husbands and wives especially, such insight into dealing with challenges. Husbands, don't try and fix your wife. Pray for her. Wives, don't expect your husband to have insights that only the Lord has. Inquire of the Lord. He's the counselor that you truly need to talk with. And what the Lord will reveal to Rebecca is incredible. It's incredible. But that's our cliffhanger for today and we're gonna find out about it in next week's study. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Take up your cross every day, every day. You don't wake up with it on. You gotta choose to take it up every day. To die to your flesh every day and live by the Spirit. But when you do that, man, it blesses your heavenly father. It puts a smile on his face and it defeats the schemes of Satan. Don't wait on anybody else. You lay down your life today. Don't wait on somebody else to go first. Pray for your spouse. Don't try to fix them. Pray for them. And when God only knows, only God knows. So seek the Lord. Go see the wonderful counselor if you're in need of understanding. So with that, let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much that you are wonderful. You are the counselor. You are the helper. You have the answers that we need, the peace we need, the hope that we need, the strength that we need. You have it all, Lord. Father, you are able to work on the most broken heart and you are able to break the most stubborn heart. We thank you for that. And so, Father, even right now as we enter this time of worship, would you help us to seek you for the things that we need answers on in life? Not to seek the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of man, but to seek the wisdom of God, the insights that only you have. Your word says if any of us lacks wisdom, we should ask of you, and you'll give it to us liberally, generously, And so, Father, we seek you now. And we determine in our hearts to seek you as we go from this place later this evening. Father, forgive us if we have sought counsel anywhere other than you first, Lord God. Lord, we know you speak through people and through ministries, but but Lord, you deserve to be first. May we go to you first There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so Jesus, we need you. We need your wisdom, your insight. Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus for any among us who are in a situation where there's strife, where there's angst, where there's bitterness, and we're just tired of dying, Father, would you fill us afresh with an overwhelming love and gratitude for the way that you laid down your life for us? That we would be motivated not out of of guilt or compulsion, but out of overwhelming gratitude to you to say, how how can I not follow in your footsteps and lay my life down? When you do that, you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You are taking up your cross and you are blessing your heavenly Father. So Lord, give us the strength to do that if we're in the place of needing to do that now. And Father, where we've been critical or tried to fix other people, Lord, help us to pray instead and to leave that work to you, Lord God.